0: Everyone, welcome back to Scripture in Black and White with uh, Anthony Walker and Bobby Harrington. Uh, We are glad that you're joining us again. If you recall on uh, the last episode, we began talking about how and why our faith is solid in Christ Jesus. And and it partly goes to the fact that we know that Jesus is not just uh, someone that a lot of people talk about, but that he is Historically proven. Uh, and so we that that's what helped out Bobby, and that's what helped me out as well. Bobby uh, had a way as an adult convert. Uh, I had the word, you know, from a babe up. However, I faced a point in life where I even began to question: is it all real? Is it a fairy tale? And by digging in deeply into the word, digging deeply into scripture. We both came to the same conclusion from varying paths that Jesus is indeed real, and we must put our faith in Him. What do you think, Bobby?
1: Uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm glad to I'm glad to be doing this with you, brother. This is going to be fun.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So today we're going to, as we talked about on last episode, we're going to dig even deeper uh, and take a a, a deep dive into the historicity of Jesus. Bobby and I both have been to Israel. I've been once, but Bobby has not just been, he's actually led several, I think it's 12 uh, excursions over to Israel, uh, leading them and teaching and even has some good uh, information and archaeology that Proves this, so we're gonna dig in. I'm gonna spend a lot of time interviewing Bobby uh, on this. Bobby, give us a kind of a quick overview, and then let's dig on in, brother.
1: All right, hey Anthony, let me tell you uh, the approach I want to take is that <clears throat> I want to assume that you've heard us. You've we've talked about why we're convicted about Jesus, and then uh, you heard us talk about the evidence. And, you know, quote people like N.T. Wright or the journal we talked about, that biblical archaeology review, where they talked about the evidence outside outside the Bible. But I just want to jump in, Anthony, and pick up when you described how Luke gives us the time, the place, uh, the political authorities from Tiberius Caesar to Pontius Pilate. And uh, I'm just going to jump in and actually walk through it like you were a non-believer. Like, uh, like, okay, I've, one of the things that I've done in my life, just being transparent is I've always tried to, to really be honest uh, and truthful about uh, everything the Bible says and about the evidence for it, because I think that uh, I want to know that it's true because I've given my life for it. I can remember when my son was a junior high uh, in junior high, and uh, he came to me, And he said, I really need to know if this is true. If it's true, it requires my life. And uh, we walked through it back then. I think a lot of people are like that. So I'm going to start this way just by way of overview, like you said. And I want to read something from Craig Evans, who's an archaeologist of the life of Jesus. He's an expert in all the archaeological historical evidence. And he's also an expert in the manuscripts for Jesus. And uh, he's very convicted, as I am about the truthfulness of it. He wrote a book called Jesus and His World, The Archaeological Evidence. And he has this paragraph. I just want to read it to you because I found it to be true. Now, he's going to use this word called verisimilitude. uh, and, And he defines what that is. It basically means things are exactly as you'd expect them to be if the Gospels are accurate. So let me read it to you. He says there's a very important argument in favor of the general reliability of the New Testament. That concerns what's called ver- vericilitude. That is, what the Gospels describe matches the way things really were in first century Jewish Palestine. So if we have these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we want to know, okay, are they accurate? Well, they actually go into a lot of detail about life, geography, people. Here's what he says. Um they speak of real people, such as Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, Annas Caiaphas, Herod Agrippa I and second, Felix and Festus, of real events, the death of John the Baptist and Agrippa. They speak of real places, villages, cities, roads, lakes, and mountains. Uh, 23 out of the 27 towns mentioned in Galilee, for example, have been found. Uh, They mention places that are clarified and corroborated by other historical sources and archaeology, and they speak of real customs, like things that people just did in the first century uh, during the life of Jesus. So Jesus, as best we can tell, was born probably 5 B.C., probably died 30 A.D., and they did things then that after 70 A.D. they didn't do anymore. Uh, and, And he talks about these things like, the synagogues there, the temples, the Passover, Sabbath, divorce laws, officers like priests, tax collectors, Roman governors, centurions, and beliefs, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all that. And he said, when you go and you check all the historical evidence, guess what? It's verisimilitude. It's exactly as you would expect things to be if the Gospels are true in what they teach us. So I just want to start with that introduction.
0: Well, see, this is, this is where I am and this is where I was when I went through my search. I wanted to know that what I believe is what actually happened, like this is actually true. One of the yeah, things okay. that I understand about the difference between truth and a lie is a lie requires a person to believe it in order for it to exist. Kind of like Santa Claus. If nobody ever believed in him, then he never exists. But Jesus, if you believe in him or not, he still is who he is. And so I reached a point, and as you're talking about this, there may be those who are listening to this as well who had the Bible, went to church all their life, and they've always believed. But do you know that what you believe actually happened? This is actually the truth. And when you come to that place, there's nothing anyone else can tell you. There's nothing, you know, even the scripture tells us not to be drawn away by fables or anything. So I don't want us to believe in this because it's popular. We're not going to believe in it because Everybody else seems to want to do it. No, we're believing in it because we know that it is true. Mm. So, so where do we begin, sir? Let's go down. Well, let's, this begin, deep journey.
1: let's begin. We're going to go through uh, 10 parts here. And uh, we'll just follow what you said, Anthony, last week when you talked about the gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm just going to take Luke since he does tell us at the beginning that he carefully investigated everything to make sure it was true. And I found that Luke is right. So let's uh, use Luke, refer to the other Gospels too, but we'll just follow Jesus' life from his birth in Bethlehem uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection uh, where Jesus ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. So let's begin with uh, Bethlehem. We know that the Gospels tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is outside Jerusalem. It's about six miles or I'm sorry, six kilometers outside of Jerusalem. And uh, from the earliest of times, uh, people knew when they read this story that it had the feel of truth. So let me give you some examples. Uh, they talked about in in the Gospel of Luke, talks about shepherds in the field. Well, yeah, there, there are shepherds' fields there that have been noted from the earliest times. Like when you go to Bethlehem, you will find that there's a couple of places where they they've noted that from the first century, shepherds would watch their fields there. There's a Greek Orthodox church uh, just outside the city limits of Bethlehem that has a tower in it uh, that goes back 5,000 years. In other words, 3,000 BCE. that archaeologists have determined shepherds had a tower there where they watched the sheep in the fields at night. And it fits the location just perfectly. So from shepherds' fields to, you might say, the location. Well, well, where was Jesus born? And uh, usually what happened, by the way, in something like Bethlehem, when Jesus became a very famous teacher and prophet, of course, there would have been people there from the time where Mary and Joseph met with their relatives in Bethlehem. When Mary, the, the Bible tells us uh, in the Gospel of Luke, that Mary gave birth to Jesus, and placed him in a manger. Now, sometimes people think, uh, you know, in a barn, but the Bible doesn't mention barn. It just says a uh, manger. And uh, what we found, uh, both in a in a gospel that's written about the birth of Jesus, uh, like a, within the first part of the 100s uh, of the common era, it mentions he was born in a cave, and we find that oftentimes... In Bethlehem and throughout Israel in the first century, guess where they kept animals? They kept them in caves. So when you go, when you go to Bethlehem, uh, there's a there's a cave that was marked from the earliest of times as the place where the baby Jesus was born. Now, when you go in those caves, this is really cool. Do you know what the temperature is? Regardless of what it's like outside, it has a constant temperature of sixty nine degrees. So when you think about it, uh, God provided so that when baby Jesus was born and he was placed in a manger, we don't know exactly when it was. We don't think it was you know, December 25th because that's not based on anything Scripture says. And the shepherds were out in the fields. It was probably October or November because that's when the sheep would be out in the fields. But we know this: that uh, the earliest tradition is he was he was placed in a manger. Mangers were in caves and in Bethlehem uh from the earliest times they marked that cave and they built a church called the church of the nativity over the spot where the the baby jesus would have been born and in one of those caves marked from the earliest times
0: wow so see just just something like that shepherds field that can that can start to align some of the things just from the beginning, right? That, that, that begins to set us up just from the location, from Shepherd's Field. This is how deep, and we're just at the tip of the iceberg here, but this is how deep and thorough uh, we're going to deal with this. So next step. And, and
1: again, it's this kind of uh, saying, is it really true? And checking these things out that becomes so important. Well, the next thing, let's stick with the birth of uh, Jesus Because uh, after Jesus was born, Luke tells us that King Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus. And uh, so we think, okay, who's this guy, Herod? Well, Herod had nine palaces. Uh, The remnants of those palaces are still there today. In fact, there was a palace outside Bethlehem called Herodium. So it's King Herod's palace. And guess what happened, Anthony? In 2007... uh, uh, Ehud Netzer, an Israeli archaeologist, stumbled into an area and they found King Herod's coffin in 2007 in Herodium, which is just outside of Bethlehem. So again, not only do we know that Herod existed the way the Bible said, he lived right beside Bethlehem. He had a palace there. And to corroborate things, we even found his coffin in uh, 2007. And by the way, the Bible describes him as a as a bad dude. He was a bad dude, and uh, we know from Josephus uh, that he was he was really a terrible person in all the things that he did. And killing all the babies in Bethlehem uh, was just it, it was such a common thing that he would do dastardly things like that that it totally fits his profile.
0: So again, just thoroughly stepping here. We've got location. We've got even talking about timing. If you relate this to when the shepherds would be out, when the sheep would be out, but we're also dealing with Herod. We have found his tomb. We have found inscriptions. We know the history. And again, one of the things that, you know, as we talk about Luke that got me was the fact that here's a guy who's writing from a perspective of a historian. And we all, we respect history, right? Even those who may not have any kind of faith, we believe historical narratives. And and, even those who might not even go too deeply into history, you pull up in Egypt and you see a pyramid, you know that someone built this long before you got here. So even that, so when we begin to find archaeology we begin to find relics we begin to find have digs and find these things it helps us to solidify this so we now know the very guy that we read about herod who's causing all this havoc who's trying to have the babies killed there is notation that he is a historical figure
1: and that he's dastardly like the new testament describes him all right let me take you to the next uh thing that we know so Uh, When Jesus is eight days old, according to Jewish custom in the book of Leviticus, he was taken to the temple uh, to be circumcised. So Mary and Joseph take him. In Luke chapter 2, it describes, you know, there's a prophet, Simeon, prophetess Anna, and they see the baby Jesus. Well, here's what we now know too. Uh, By the way, when you go to uh, Jerusalem today, and you go to the, it's called the Old Cities, the old part of Jerusalem, you can see how that temple, I mean, the retaining walls and the framework of the temple from the first century, it's still there. In fact, we're going to get to this, but in the late 1990s, uh, archaeologists uncovered everything uh, around the retaining wall of the temple, and they found the stones from the temple, and, and they found the beautiful gate, uh, they, they found uh, the place where the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin would meet. They found an inscription for that. So it all fits. And the reason I'm bringing it up is we wouldn't know this in North America, but when you go there, there's no way you would ever think that the temple uh, uh, that Jesus was circumcised at, and he comes to as a boy when he's 12 years of age, that's a huge temple. Like uh, where I live, there's a mall, it's called Cool Springs Mall, It's, it's huge. And the size of Cool Springs Mall approximates uh, the way that the temple would have been. So when you go there today, it's it's multiple football fields, multiple soccer fields in a huge area. And, and it uh, it's all existing today. So when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, they did not restro- destroy the retaining wall. And it's exactly uh, the way it's described. In fact... Uh, Again, since the 1990s, uh, they keep finding these paths that people in the first century traveled because you have to go up to the temple from uh, Jericho when you're coming from the east uh, toward the west to the city of Jerusalem. And they find these paths that all the pilgrims would have traveled up to the temple in Jerusalem. So it's pretty amazing, and uh, you know, uh, I've got some pictures that sometimes I show people of what the temple looked like. And uh, uh, you know, Israeli archaeologists uh, in nineteen sixty seven, when the the Jewish people took back that area for the first time since seventy A.D., so about nineteen hundred years since it was under Jewish control, they got Jewish control of it again in nineteen sixty seven, and so they uh, created a replica. Of the of Jerusalem in the first century and of the temple and uh, I've had an artist uh, work with some of the pictures I've had and to create one uh, what it would look like. We also see the gate. Uh, it's called the beautiful gate. That uh, there's a group of us. We always get a picture standing in the corner by the beautiful gate, which people would go into that gate. the The door frames of it are still there. They go into the beautiful gate and then up into the temple. In fact, hey, uh, Anthony, let me read you something that that I I really enjoyed. (laughs) Neil Armstrong, uh, uh, who landed on the moon and walked on the moon, went to Jerusalem. And uh, in a book by Thomas Friedman called From Beirut to Jerusalem, he talked about being there at the beautiful gate and of going in. And I, I just wanna read it to you because I always read it when I'm there with our guys. We stand in that area Uh, that he talks about. Here's what he said. When the American astronaut Neil Armstrong, a devout Christian, visited Israel after his trip to the moon, he was taken on a tour of the old city of Jerusalem by the archaeologist Mayor Ben Dove. When they came to uh, the Hulda Gate, which probably was also the beautiful gate, which is at the top of the stairs leading to the Temple Mount, Armstrong asked Ben Dove whether Jesus had stepped anywhere around there. Uh, I told him, look, Jesus was a Jew, recalled Ben Dove. These are the steps that led to the temple. So he must have walked here many times. Armstrong then asked uh, if these were the original steps, and Ben Dove confirmed they were. So Jesus stepped right here, asked Armstrong. That's right, answered Ben Dove. I have to tell you, Armstrong said to the Israeli archaeologist, I'm more excited stepping on these stones than I was stepping on the moon. And I just, I just love that. Again, I, you know, I felt the same way when I'm there. It's like, this is so incredible. When I'm there, I'm always thinking, I just wish everybody knew all of this stuff and how it corroborates things. I mean, I usually take pictures of my friends standing beside the temple stones that were thrown down by the Romans that were just unearthed in the last thirty years. I mean, they've been there since seventy A.D., and just the way Jesus said. And so, it's pretty—it's pretty cool to see all that.
0: So, Bethlehem, the temple. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say. So, in this second piece. The, the when Jesus in, in Luke chapter 2 is you know running around the temple courts, this is the area that he would have run around.
1: Yes. In fact, uh, that's where in Luke chapter 2, if you'll remember, uh, <clears throat> he came with his family. What they would do, especially because Jesus lived in Nazareth, which is about 80 miles to the north. So it was about a three-day trip, and they would come down from Nazareth uh, along the Jordan River. They would camp at night, and there would be an extended family, probably 25, 30 people. So he would be there with his cousins and you know friends from the village, and they would all travel together, probably with wagons and donkeys and such, and they would uh, camp a couple of nights, and then uh, they'd go up from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's about... Uh, you know, 15 miles, you travel uphill and when you get uphill, it's the old city and and the temples right there. So what happens is Mary and Joseph uh, they leave and they would have left with the whole group and they get down to Jericho. And when we assume it's Jericho, it doesn't say that in the text, but they they they're gone for about a day and then they find out that Jesus is not with our entourage. So they go back up, they go into the temple and it says they find him and they ask him, uh, Mary and Joseph asked him and he said, don't you know, I had to be in my father's house. So he's there with the teachers of the law. And and of course, all that is exactly the way, uh, the geography, the architecture of the temple, the paths. I've walked on that road from Jerusalem down to Jericho and it all fits exactly as you'd expect,
0: Bobby. This is an area uh, as a as a preacher that I make a correlation, a preaching point uh, in the garden. Um, originally, after Adam and Eve had sinned, uh, the very first question uh, that is asked is, "Adam, where are you?" Well, when Jesus, which Scripture describes, Paul describes. As the second Adam, uh, the first Adam bringing sin into the world, the second Adam taking sin out of the world, the same question is asked of him as well. Well, where where were you? (laughs) Where are you? And Jesus says, listen, I I had to be about my father's business. Great, great point. uh, Great, great uh, point there about the the temple uh, courts. Uh, And Jesus would have been, you know, dedicated here at about 12. This would have been the area. So, again, just the area. This is, again, historically lining this up um, for us.
1: Yeah. And again, with the temple, we can't appreciate uh, how big of a deal the temple was for Jews in the first century and for the city of Jerusalem. It just dominated Jerusalem in the first century. And that the temple retaining walls and the stones that were thrown down, it's all there. You can go see it and check it out.
0: So another area um, that we can kind of walk down through this, Bobby, now I'm going to I'm going to introduce it and I want you to help me with this. When we went to when we went to Israel, um, I knew one of the places I had to go was the Jordan River. The problem with that is there were two sites (laughs) that are kind of recognized as, quote unquote, the Jordan River. We went to one and and this place, you know, nice parking, nice area. You get out. Everything is beautiful, green and lush. Uh, You see several tour buses and people, you know, hopping off getting baptized in droves, right? They have this nice gift yeah. shop. This is this is the area, right? But then a day or two later, we go to the other site, quote unquote, the Jordan River. And yeah. it's it's a kind of an empty parking lot. There's a few cars yeah. there. We yeah. get out and the first thing that hit me is the smell. It it was just What is this place? And we we get closer. It smells even more rancid. And the water, again, contrasting the other Jordan River site that we went to, the water is brown, murky. Uh, It smells and it's like, what is this place? This is the Jordan River as well. And I can understand from seeing both sites. I understand why the tour buses were at the other place. But but help me with the the location that you kind of settled on.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the location you're talking about. If you'll think of this, think of uh, uh, Galilee in the north and uh, there's the Sea of Galilee and uh, it's pretty big. You can see it like on a satellite. You can see it. It's it's pretty big and it's fresh water. And out of the Sea of Galilee flows the Jordan River, and it flows down Israel uh, to the south. Uh, Ultimately, uh, at least in the time of Jesus, it ended in the Dead Sea. It used to end in the Dead Sea in Israel uh, through the 60s, but guess what? Uh, Both Israel, especially with all the uh, advancements in Israel in agriculture and all the developments in Israel and Jordan, they're siphoning water off uh, so that the Sea of Galilee is actually not putting that much water into the Jordan River. And, uh, of course, up north, close to the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River is like it's more touristy, like you said. By the time it gets down to Jerusalem, uh, you're going to find that it's not, it's not as robust. Uh, it's slow moving and it's kind of smelly like you said, uh, and in fact, uh, it was only recently that tourists can go from the Israeli side to the Jordan River near Jerusalem. And certainly in the ministry of John the Baptist, because all these people from Jerusalem came down to see uh, John baptizing people, and that's where Jesus is likely baptized, in the south, near, uh, near to Jerusalem, so that would be that area in the south. But the truth of the matter, Anthony, is John the Baptist would baptize people all along the Jordan River because it describes how he was baptizing a lot of people near Anon because there was a lot of water there. And that's up more in the north near the Sea of Galilee. And so he was probably baptizing people all along there. And of course, the river where all the water was, Uh, in the first century, was not being siphoned off for uh, agriculture, the river was pretty robust right in through that whole area down to the Dead Sea. Here's the thing about it, that again, it matches what the Gospels say. The Gospels say in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized, uh, that people were being baptized. It says, in Luke 3.3, 3, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And so Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, uh, John the Baptist tries to tell Jesus he's not worthy, but Jesus says this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness and he is baptized in the Jordan River. And we think it's it's that spot closer to Jerusalem also Because Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4 that after his baptism, Jesus goes into the Judean desert uh, for 40 days of fasting and prayer. And the Judean desert is there in the south. In fact, when we go there, we usually go uh, to a place uh, just outside Jericho uh, where you see this Temptation Mountain. And uh, there's an ancient tradition that that's where the temptations Uh, Jesus experienced some of his temptations. Now, we don't know that. We just know it was in the Judean desert that is basically from that area of Jericho and then south. It goes south of there uh, toward Qumran and the Dead Sea. That would be the Judean desert.
0: Mm. So, So you landed where we landed as well. Uh, which from scripture, now, again, this is the Jordan, but from scripture, the location area points more to that dirty, stinky area than the clean, touristy <laughs> area that we were, but Nothing we're thankful.
1: very stinky and smelly in the first century, but that's
0: right. <laughs> right, right, right. But we're thankful to know, okay, here even, and, and, and we can do that. I'll say this and and then we'll go to uh, the uh, next point. Number four, one of the things that, that hit me as well on my trip was the feeling or the sense that I'm here where a lot of this stuff that I'm reading, I'm here. I I can see it. We can go to the area and see it for ourselves. And, And that makes it again, even for those that may never get the opportunity. I'm like you, Bobby. I wish that every Christian, uh, every believer at some point make a way over there just to see it. But even for those that aren't able to go over there, there are those like yourself um, and, and many others who've taken the time to go and look at this to see. There are even people who you know, began not necessarily as a believer, but when they see the collection of evidence, you have no option other than to accept this to be true.
1: Yeah, I was holding this, Anthony, and for a little bit later, but I'll tell you now, several years ago, uh, I, I went to Israel, it was a part of a tour, and then I stayed late just because I find it so fascinating. And I was at the Israeli museum and uh, I went to the, there's a wing of the Israeli museum in Jerusalem. So the the Israeli museum has all the archeological findings and that's where they store them where uh, the public can see them. And uh, I was in the first century wing and I was looking at parts from the temple where they had the place of the trumpeter. They found that stone so that on the Sabbath that told them where to blow the trumpet that the sabbath was beginning and and right there is uh herod's coffin uh right there is uh the ossuary or the the bone box of caiaphas uh and it's right there and you can touch it and then uh, i was just and i was like overwhelmed and i went out and i just sat down and i just prayed i just said oh god if I could only bring my family here and my friends who don't believe to show them so they would see it. Now, I don't think that makes somebody believe, but I got to tell you, it's very, very powerful for those of us who who want, like, I want to be a man of truth. I only want to believe what's true. And I got to tell you that uh, in, in my times of doubt, and in my times of uncertainty, I just keep going back and I said, you know, the evidence is so strong. I've been there. I've seen it. I've touched these places. I've walked these places. This was not stuff
0: that was made up. Wow. Wow. It, it is certainly true. And it has an impact when you have the opportunity to see it. Your, your faith is in the word. And, and it's the same word that became flesh, dwelt among us. It's the same word that formed the worlds. We've got that. But there's something yeah. significant that takes place when you get an opportunity to see it.
1: Mm. Let's go to the fourth uh, place or uh, phase of Jesus, Jesus' life, and that's up in Galilee. So the Bible uh, tells us about Jesus being at the temple when he's 12. And then we don't hear about him again until Luke says he's about 30. Uh, Now, about 30, you know, give or take three years either way. Uh, I think he probably started his public ministry in 26 AD. And so uh, by then, uh, he's in the north. He's in Galilee. And, of course, the Sea of Galilee is the big thing. Like, it is so cool to go there. And you see this huge lake and there's boats on it. There's commercial, commercial fishing to this day. And we go on boat rides when we're there. And you see that, you know, you go to the shoreline and, and you see all these places that are described. Uh, there's, uh, it's called the Golden Triangle in the north of uh, the Sea of Galilee, where you've got from Bethsaida to Capernaum to uh where like they 70 percent of the things uh the stories in the gospels in galilee where it happens and of course all those towns are there you can go to the synagogues that were there the one in capernaum as we're going to see was there in the time of jesus and it's just really amazing to be there now uh just i i mentioned this earlier but let me say it again james fleming who lived in israel for 40 years who was uh the top archaeologist, he trained all the tour guides in Israel, and uh, they've identified 23 of the 27 towns in Galilee that are mentioned in the gospel. We often take people to this place where, you know, it's a pavilion that marks where the cities were, so you can stand there, uh, the Sea of Galilee is out there, and it points to where the towns were.
0: Wow. Wow! So, so just as we're talking about this area, this is where Jesus would have done—you know—begins his ministry. He, a lot of significant things happen here. Would, I'm sure you would suggest this would be a hot spot to go for those who are uh, on their journey and, and and wanting to know a little oh, bit yeah. more. This would be a spot oh, yeah. that you got to go. <laughs>
1: you you, 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 you got to go to the Sea of Galilee. In fact, one of the things that we do is uh, we, we uh, I'll get to this when we talk about Capernaum, but uh, Jesus moved to Capernaum. uh, Matthew chapter four says that Jesus left Nazareth and uh, moved to Capernaum. So what we like to do is uh, get in the boat in Capernaum and go across to the other side. The gospels call it the other side. It tended to be the pagan non-Jewish side. That's where the uh, Jesus, uh, cast demons into a you know a man into uh, from a man into all these pigs and they run in to the lake and it's it's on the other side so we really like to do that. Let me tell you though. Uh, let, let me uh, before I get to Capernaum, talk a little bit about Nazareth. It's very interesting. Uh, Nazareth is because they found some things uh, just even recently that uh, are really noteworthy. So first of all, let's say that, let me tell everybody this. As best as archaeologists can tell, uh, there's about 150 to 300 people who lived in Nazareth in the first century. It may be that the name Nazareth Nazareth, was uh, taken from a prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah that talked about a root would come up from the stump of Jesse. So it's, in other words, Jesse was King David's father. King David is the, the, the Messiah is a descendant of King David. God promised David there would be a Messiah. So all the messianic promises in the Old Testament are based on it. And uh, Isaiah 11 is a messianic promise. And it says a, a shoot, uh, in other words, a tree will be cut down, but a shoot comes up. So the descendants of David look like that they're they're gone, but then a shoot comes up. And the name for shoot is Netzor. And a lot of people think that Nazareth uh, is is a derivative of Netzor, that they're the descendants of King David from Bethlehem who move up to Nazareth and are living there in the first century. But it's a small town, again, about 150 to 300 people. Uh, Most of the homes are either uh, in caves or attached to their homes that are attached to caves because that's where they would put the animals. Uh, and of course, there's a synagogue there. Uh, when you go to Nazareth, uh, you, there's, a, there's a place that's called Nazareth Village where some Christians, I know them actually, uh, have created a village where they try to recreate life from the first century. And so you can see like a carpenter shop, what it would have looked like. You can see the size of the houses. They, they've rebuilt a replica of the synagogue that was there. And it, it's really quite cool. But here are the things in Nazareth that are the most interesting. Uh, one of them is that archeologists are pretty sure that they found the home that Mary grew up in. In the early 100s, the home was marked uh, as the home of Mary. Uh, you also see one of the earliest inscriptions of John the Baptist holding up a cross, pointing to Jesus. Uh, Eusebius tells us that in Nazareth, uh, there was a revolt, there was concerns about people following a Messiah in the 100s. And uh, they wouldn't participate in it in Nazareth because they, believed, they told they let the Roman authorities know they believed that the Messiah had already come. And so uh, from a very early time, they kind of were the curators of Mary's home, uh, the, uh, at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, uh, the curator of the museum part of that tells me that archeologists are like 90% sure that this was Mary's home. And uh, across the street, and this is just new, uh, the archeologist Craig Evans, thinks that they found an other home that possibly was, uh, again, uh, uh, maybe Joseph's home. They wonder, uh, just because of some of the ways that it was held as sacred, uh, if it was also just part of, you know, Mary and Joseph and their legacy that was noted there.
0: I got to go to that spot. Uh, I I don't know when the last time you went, but yeah, I got to go to that spot and I, I just... Kind of stood and I'm looking like, wow, Mary lived over there, more than likely. Uh, Joseph lives right down the street. Um, man, that was just a, another beautiful moment. So that's five uh, points that we've gone through, five areas uh, of archaeology, of history, of evidence uh, of the life of Jesus. And I can't wait, Bobby, for uh, next episode where we deal with five more of the 10 that you've talked about that just talks and shows the life of Jesus. You all don't want to miss it. We'll see you next time. Anthony, thank you so much. All righty.